0: Thank you. It's Friday, June 11th, I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from PEN America. On today's edition, Zakia Dalila Harris on her breakout debut, The Other Black Girl. Our Jared Jackson has that interview. Then it's time for tough questions. This week we discuss reporters' emails, the ongoing debate over COVID's origins, and grappling with critical race theory. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on The Pen Pod. Zakiya Dalila Harris, on the issues black women face in a white workspace. Our Jared Jackson has that conversation.
1: In Zakiya Dalila Harris's debut novel, The Other Black Girl, Nella Rogers is a young black woman who is an editorial assistant at a prestigious New York City publishing house. Tired and frustrated for the microaggressions faced as the only black person in her department, Nella is excited when her publisher hires another black woman, Hazel, but slowly discovers that everything isn't quite as it seems. Zakiya Dalila Harris joins me now. Zakiya, thanks for coming on the PinPod.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you today.
1: Yeah, so um, let's get started. Um, like Nella, you worked for a few years as an assistant and editorial at a major publishing house. I'm wondering, did you begin the novel prior to working in publishing and in what ways did working in publishing inform your novel?
2: Yes, yes. I am um, actually literally started writing this book in my cubicle. Um, and I worked in publishing for, I started out as an editorial assistant, then was promoted to an assistant editor a couple years in. Um, and I was really excited about it in a lot of ways. I got to get my own title to work on. My bosses trusted me to take on, you know, a work all on my own. Um, but I just remember feeling devastated about it because. I'd always wanted to be a writer. Before working in publishing, I did an MFA um, in creative writing, and so I was I was very much torn. Um, but then I had this idea for this book a few months after being promoted, um, after kind of running into this other black woman on my floor and having this very intense array uh, feelings uh-huh. from, you know, being confused. And wondering who she was and why I'd never seen her before, and if she was going to be working there um, with me because I was the only black woman on the floor. Um, and then kind of that mo- mo- that moment uh, went from her kind of she didn't really acknowledge me, didn't seem as excited to see me, um, <laughs> uh, didn't quite engage the way I'd kind of thought we would. So it also it then went to confusion, you know, of going from excited to confused and disappointed. So anyway, after that happened, I, I went back to my desk and. I had this this vision of a book, um, you know, about two, just two black women working in a very white workspace. Um, and it, you know, one of them was weird. That's all I knew about the book. And I started writing it probably on my work stationery <laughs> while I was supposed to be doing work. So, I, I mean, it definitely informed. I had been, you know, I'd been in publishing for a few years. I was at that moment, uh, like 24, 25 words, kind of like, you know, I love writing. I really enjoy editing. Um, You know, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life, though? Like, I love writing. So when this idea hit, I was like, you know what, I just need to see it through. But I was also feeling fatigued as the only Black woman on my floor, the only Black woman in the editorial. And so I kind of was really able to feed a lot of my own kind of, you know, observations of looking around the table and not seeing anyone who looks like me, like what that was like, um, but at the same time, just really enjoying the job itself um, and what, what it's like to be doing something that, you know, you're really enjoying doing and you see yourself being, for me, I would call myself being the Black editor, female ed- editor that they didn't have on my imprint, but also wondering, you know, is this worth it? Like, do I really want to be a part of this system still? Because it who knows if it's actually going to change the way that, you know, it kind of seems like we have these diversity meetings, but then no one quite seems to be as like gung-ho at the top about these things. So so those are all things that definitely informed my novel and, of course, Nella's experiences and the other women's experiences in the book as well.
1: Yes. Um there's a there's a really great scene um about these diversity meetings um that I really enjoyed reading. Um and I think um, I think readers will too. But um you you touched on this a bit. Um, you know, it's no secret that publishing um as an industry is homogenous. Um I wanted um, in a way that, you know, your novel makes clear diversifying publishing goes beyond the writers. Um, Can you speak Mm -hmm. a bit about these excess accessibility issues, Um, which, you know, another form of gatekeeping um, that often present themselves to people of color um, trying to break into this industry's, you know, historic systemic whiteness. And if you have Mm -hmm. any models, successful models that you have seen or, you know, in the past year, um, obviously things in the news with with uh, publishing houses that have. Then, I guess, taking steps towards changing these hindrances.
2: yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a really great question. I mean, uh, one of the takeaways when I talk to people about this book for me that I want people to have after reading it is like this book is really a story of you know what the the power of trying to retain um young people of color in the office um Nella's whole story is really her really kind of flailing in a lot of ways, trying to please everyone at this very white publishing house. Um, and no one's, no one's quite checking in with her or kind of asking her as just a person, like, how are you feeling about working here? You know? And so I I feel like in order to re- better retain people, well, first, let me go back sorry, to your question about how to get, uh have more diverse people. I think it. I think it starts at the bottom. You know, I love that we're seeing so many um, amazing, talented um, Black people being appointed to higher up positions in publishing. I think that's a great first step in some ways. But I also think we need to be looking at entry level positions. And one of the things that's so hard talking about diversity and just how to diversify employees, I think, is the fact that the money is so the pay is so low in publishing. It's it's egregious. Like I, it, you know, I was living paycheck to paycheck for a while working in publishing. I know so many people struggling to, you know, pay their rent living in New York on less than 40K. Um, I don't know, I don't know how much it is now, but living on in New York City at the amount of money that you're making is really, really hard to do without support. And I was very fortunate to have a support system in place if I needed one, Um, I had a net, but a lot of people don't have that. Um, And I think that's something to take into consideration for young people who are just trying to get into publishing. Um, Another thing that I noticed that I personally benefited from, and a lot of people in publishing benefit from, and Nella also benefits from this in the book, uh, she feels conflicted about it, is the connections are really what get you into publishing. So I went to the new school, did my MSA there. I had a wonderful teacher who said, you know, your writing is so great. I barely ever have to edit it. Do you want to work in publishing? Like, do you have any interest in doing publishing? Cause this was my last semester in my MSA program. And I said, yes, are you serious? I've been wanting to, I've been trying to apply to these internships and these jobs every summer in New York, like I'm from Connecticut. So I was able to, you know, I knew I'd be able to commute or whatever. But it's so hard to get a job of publishing unless you know someone in the world already. And when the world is mostly white people, of course, you know, in an editor, when a position opens up an editor is gonna say, oh, I know someone, like know someone who knows someone. And a lot of times someone's end up being someone who's white or someone who's of the same background or same class as them. And so, I mean, for me, the teacher I had at the new school Knew someone who knew someone who knew someone, and I believe it was a black woman. It was not even an editorial in, in the publishing house I went to, but still was able to get me in. Or at least I believe that's how it works. Everything is so you know it's hard to see what's going on behind the behind the scenes. But so that's another problem that you know I think we need to we I say we because I still have publishing in my heart. <laughs> I Will always be a publishing person. Um, but I really think it's important to try to think of more creative ways to recruit people. And one thing I remember talking about in some of these meetings that was great was talking about how to go to uh, more diverse schools and just tell, tell young people that publishing is an option. Because I didn't actually really know what publishing was until I was an English major in college. And I was like, oh, this is a, this is something I can do with my degree. I love books, I love reading, I love writing, talking about words. Um, But that's something that I don't think a lot of people know. And so I think that could change the, you know, the how uh, publishing recruits people. The one thing, and the one thing I'll say that I have heard that at least to me sounds good is um, I'm not exactly sure if they take off the college on resumes, but definitely doing like blind resume uh, reviews, I think of like. Not having the person's name, not even having the college, because at the end of the day, to be completely honest with you, like to be an editorial assistant, to really work at any of these entry level positions in publishing, you just need to know how to talk to people um, and know how to ask questions. Like I had no background in publishing when I started, and after a few months, I had gotten pretty much everything down. You still really have to have a good attitude. And I think, you know, to think, pretend that. Number ten, but to think that someone who goes to the Columbia publishing program is going to automatically do better in publishing than someone who can afford to spend money on that program is isn't right. Like I think that we really need to think more about publishing as, you know, connecting people, having people talk to one another. And I think that in itself is a skill that, you know, that should be the thing that we prioritize over It's a sort like traditional credentials.
1: That's uh yeah I mean that's that's great to hear I um I I kind of want to build off of that in terms of mm-hmm. just this 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 um support or sometimes lack thereof um you know the novel not only depicts black women in a professional space but also socially. Um, Nella has a friend Malika. There's a a scene, a really great, vivid scene with a group of Black women um, gathering to hang out and they're swapping and talking hair products. Um, And without giving too much away, we see Black women looking out for and supporting each other. Um, One thing for me that stood out was how the the occupancy of space mattered. So it informed their actions, their level of comfort, the language they use. And I wanted to hear your thoughts, what thoughts went into your writing and mapping out and depicting these various shifting relationships between these Black women um, and within the context of space, um, you know, professional or social, and, um, you know, competition versus kinship um, and how you navigated that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mentioned or alluded to this earlier. So much of Nella is informed by my own personal experiences and essays I'd been writing before writing this book. Um, and one of them is, a, I'm, I grew up in a mostly white neighborhood, went to a mostly white elementary school in Connecticut, and for so many years, like, you know, I'd have this home life that was very much Black, very much like my parents made sure we had Black Barbie dolls. They made sure I was reading uh, books with Black characters, made sure I was writing about Black characters. So At a very young age, um, my grandparents, they, like, I, I'd have this, these conversations with them about the importance of where we came from um, and what we've endured and how amazing it is that we're here today and to be proud of that. So that was at home, but in school, I of course had mostly white friends who all had, you know, straight or fine hair. So of course I wanted to relax my hair and straighten it the way that I was seen at school um, when we had like the slavery um units that always comes up um I would feel so many you know conflicted and emotional and feel like everyone was staring at me all the time um these are all things that I didn't really think about in the moment as much as of just being black and so as I got older though I started to see you know that there that how much space really place in space really does affect how you uh how you relate to yourself? I mean, I had my own personal uh, Black renaissance, I say, um, when I first moved to the city and Eric Garner was happening, Philando Castillo was happening. Um, I cut off my relaxed hair, I went natural, um, but I also felt like New York was just such a place for me to do it. So, so I've always been really kind of, uh, I find myself changing depending on where I am. And I think that's something Black women especially do Uh, I bring up code switching in the book, which is such a huge part of why Nella imagines at first that her and Hazel will get along. Um, And code switching, of course, is something that Black people have done, many minorities have done, but Black people have been doing it for years. It's something that I know generations before me were doing of kind of having the one kind of self they feel like they can bring to work or bring to this certain party or this space. And then being able to take that off, um, or it's maybe not even a facade, it's just another side of the the same coin, you know what I mean? So I feel like I really wanted to show how much the spaces um, that Black women exist in matter, um, and feeling like they can express themselves that is so important. But a lot of times with corporate spaces, you feel like you can. Um, and I've heard stories about people uh, 10 years ago getting notes in the mail and publishing about how they should change their hair so that it, it, it's more professional, quote unquote professional, um, those kind of things. And that's not that long ago. So yeah, I just, I really wanted to talk about how that impacts a black woman's uh, sense of self, how that impacts their motivation um, and just changes or informs how they move throughout the world.
1: I want to, um, you know, I want to, I guess now I'm going to shift. I added on to the last question. I'm going to shift a little bit. Um, and I've, I've heard that, um, you know, the, the book has been picked up for, for television. And I'm, I, I'm wondering, you know, I recently read a tweet by the writer, Victor Laval, um, who said that he realized he wasn't turning the book into a show, but that he was telling the story in a new way. Um, he went on to call the show a cousin, not copy. Um, I wanted to hear what you thought about this idea. Um, And um, I believe you're in the writing room. And so what your experience Mm -hmm. has been like um, and how you describe the differences between writing the novel and navigating writing the show.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's been so much fun. First of all, I think that quote is so good. uh, Calling the show a cousin, not a copy. Because I definitely have also adopted that same mentality with the, the adaptation. I mean, when I wrote this book, I did not. I definitely wrote it and was thinking it would be great if just like one place picks it up and I can publish it. But I had not no visions of writing a TV show. Um, and so at first, when I when I had all this interest um, at the time of the I sold the book to Atria, my wonderful publisher, I was like so taken aback um, by the fact that they saw themselves like film TV saw themselves in a too. But I do think now a story in a way. I mean that code switching expands not just to publishing but of course acting and performing is a whole other kind of uh, thing you have to do and so I was really excited about that and I've just been really having a lot of fun exploring the ways that these characters can really truly live like I I could get inside Nella's head in the book I could spend like 20 pages 30 pages like just really getting into backstory jumping back in time talking about her like innermost feelings but with tv it's so different like i there's music i have different tools and so it's been a little difficult at first like changing my not changing my voice it's not it's still the same voice but really just reimagining the world in a way that there are actual people in it there are actual music cues like there are actual really creepy sounds and you know because i i do want to lean into the genre element of the book Um, I want to bring Wagner to life and there's just so much more space to really expand on all of their backstories and the mystery can just keep the the mystery is very I won't give anything away but the mystery is (laughs) just so rich and there are so many ways that I feel like we can just keep boosting boosting the mystery and and unfolding it even more slowly so I'm really excited about it and so so excited that they wanted me to be a part of it
1: I'm I'm excited um for the 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 finished product product as well um and so last question um if you have time in your life right now it sounds very busy but what are you reading (laughs) now
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know I actually am, am not reading too much right now but I am rereading passing by Nella Larson um which I believe came out in 1929. Uh, but it's where I got actually my protagonist's name from, uh, Nella Larson. I was reading Passing at the time I started writing this book. And I I'm rereading Passing now, I'm like, wow, I really was inspired by this book. Because like, I kind of knew before. Uh, so Passing tells the story of uh, two Black women who are both very, very light skinned um, and are able to pass in 1920s. New York, um, and the tensions between them, and how their decisions to um, to hold themselves, to move throughout the world, how that creates tension between them, and it's actually so similar to Nella and Hazel. Uh, it's such a it's such a gripping. It's not a horror book, but there are moments that like are horrifying and thrilling. It's it's really a, a really intriguing social commentary that feels. So so timely, so i've that's what I've been rereading um and I've also just uh of course been reading a lot of book reviews and trying to just keep myself also distracted from my own book <laughs> so <laughs> get also my t b r list is growing, so i'm I'm just trying to file away all the stuff I'm gonna read when everything gets a little quieter sometimes. That-
1: <laughs> yes yeah um that's just funny I, I actually just um i reread passing last last spring so um that's great uh, to hear um yeah. but um so zakiya dalila Del- harris is the author of the other black girl um it's a really clever and gripping social satire um Zakia, thank you so much for joining us on the pen pod
2: thank you so much for having me jared wonderful <laughs>
0: So after a week break, we're back this week with Tough Questions, our weekly segment where we talk through tricky questions about free speech and free expression that came up during the week. Here to walk us through the week, Pan America CEO, Suzanne Nossel. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Steven. So Suzanne, more revelations this week over reporters' emails. This time it was CNN saying that some of its top officials were subject to a gag order as the Trump Justice Department tried to obtain email logs from reporters. The Biden White House says it's moving away from this practice. But what does this say about the lingering threat to journalists from the Trump legacy?
3: Yeah, look, these revelations are kind of shocking, but not surprising. You know, we sued the Trump administration under the First Amendment for its threats and acts of retaliation against journalists precisely because They were on the warpath, and we knew that they looked at serious, credible journalism as a a threat to their ability to maintain power. And they knew that if the truth was reported about what that administration was doing, that uh, it reflected very poorly and would hurt them. And so they sought to thwart journalists and media organizations in a whole variety of ways. And so this revelation that, in fact, they sought— not just work emails, but personal emails and phone records of journalists as part of a leak investigation is, you know, sort of of a piece with their overall hardball tactics of wanting to go after journalists, journalists, menace journalists, uh, send a message to journalists that, uh, you know, if they sort of skated close to any lines, there could be severe consequences. But it seemed as if this particular effort sort of timing-wise, the emails were in relation to a leak investigation pertaining to 2017 and yet the the requisitions for these records came very late in the Trump administration in 2020. So perhaps speaking to kind of an end of era intensification of uh, score-settling sort of effort uh, when it came to both leakers and uh, perhaps the journalists who published their revelations. And then the gag order, You know what it illustrates is just the, 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 the breadth and the power that the Justice Department has had to silence and stifle inquiry and exposure of its own efforts to probe into Uh, the work of investigative journalists. And I think that's what kind of caught people in the press freedom community somewhat by surprise, is just the, the scope of these gag orders. And I think what's significant and consequential going forward is that whereas this practice, much as it might seem disturbing from a press freedom and free expression perspective has been accepted. I mean, the Justice Department has this power. It's a power. A set of powers that the Obama administration used. But now the Biden administration and Merrick Garland are saying they're no longer going to do that. So they're not going to go after investigative reporters and leak investigations. And that that is a substantial step forward toward greater protection for press freedom and seemingly a, a, a blanket set of safeguards, which is something that the press freedom community has long sought but never before gotten. And uh, uh, Attorney General Garland has said that's going to be promulgated in uh, a concrete way through a new communicator set of regulations. And so obviously we have to see what that looks like. But, you know, the net consequence going forward of this actually could be very positive. And it's sort of one of those ironic situations where the revelation of just how bad it got Prompts real and lasting change, at least potentially. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I, I want to move to uh, COVID nineteen. Um, you know, it's interesting. Over the past few weeks, we've seen sort of meta stories about how the press may have downplayed theories about the virus emanating from a lab in China, either from a leak or otherwise. We've seen some critics say that it was indeed perhaps an overreaction to disinformation. That it may have stifled the ability to fully explore that theory that people were so animated about, you know, trying to not say something that was wrong. That maybe we did ourselves a disservice by not more fully exploring the theory. What's your take?
3: I think there are a couple interesting aspects to this. I mean, one, of course, is a longstanding concern that we have had at PEN America about. China's influence on the global flow of information. And I think the story of the origins of COVID is potentially one with kind of existential implications for uh, the, the uh, Chinese government and the Communist Party regime, you know, depending on what actually happened. But it, it's clear that they feel an intense drive to control the story. They very tightly controlled the WHO team that came in to investigate. And so uh, that that creates a fundamental dilemma in that it, it feels hard to believe anything that comes out of the mouths of Chinese scientists or those who are permitted to do these very circumscribed investigations in China because you know that they're not free, that there isn't transparency, uh, and that the Chinese government wouldn't hesitate to cover up the truth if that were in their interest. So. Are they covering up or not? I don't know, but you certainly can't be confident that they aren't. The second piece is what you mentioned, which is sort of this complicated interplay between sort of conspiracy theory and you know outlandish and unpredictable truth. Just because something sounds like it could be the stuff of a conspiracy theory, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that it is. You know, sometimes those uh, you know wild revelations or suspicions turn out to be true. And so, you know, as a kind of information ecosystem, how do we process notions, postulations, theories, hypotheses that sort of have perhaps some of the earmarks of something that uh, could be false, but also may have some grounding in truth and, and deserve to be Investigate, And I think when it comes to something as consequential as the origins of COVID-19, which, you know, ground our entire globe virtually to a halt for, you know, a, uh, over a year, I think we have to go down every pathway. You know, I, I think the fact that it could be conspiratorial in nature, that it may be baseless, uh, you know, should not mean that it isn't fully investigated and so I think this is a place where we really have to err on the side of you know looking at every possible theory and that happens sometimes you know when they investigate for example an airplane crash they look at wild and outlandish theories and you know sometimes they they can never find uh, a, a, an explanation but they don't exclude anything and I think that should be the premise here
0: yeah. Well, finally, I want to turn to just another in a long line of bills that have been signed across the country targeting the teaching of critical race theory. Uh, The latest in Iowa happened this week. Uh, That bill was signed into law. You know, it comes against this national movement um, and and sort of overall outrage against this legal theory that I think up until a few months ago, few had heard of. What do these bills say? Uh, What are they all about? And how do they pose a threat to academic freedom? And, And why should that concern us?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, critical race theory is something that was alive and well when I was in law school, and you know, is a set of ideas that basically asks the you know reader, the thinker, to look at our society through the prism of how racism has been infused in and inflected our institutions, our legal system, uh, our our rules. Uh, this you know how our government is configured and you know it's an interesting lens that i think uh is provocative raises important questions prompts you to look at things from new angles and to see things that you might have otherwise been blind or oblivious to and so you know it's like so many different notions uh in philosophy or legal theory or social theory that sort of play that role and you don't have to you know you could subscribe to it more fully or less fully but uh it adds something to the discussion and i think what's happening here is you know there's this sense that the effort to address the legacy of systemic racism in this country you know some think you know it's kind of going too far and that it's 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 gone too far in the direction of sort of demonizing white people, or talking about the history of the country in overly negative terms, negating the contributions of, say, the Founding Fathers, or the value of the US Constitution or Bill of Rights, because it's all kind of seen through this frame of propagating systemic racism. And, you know, I... I, think of this as one of these moments of a pendulum swinging and the pendulum sort of never swings to the middle. And I think for a long time, you know, these ideas have been really shunted to the margins and we haven't thought enough about how race has determined what our society looks like. And, you know, I, now the pendulum has swung. And, you know, I think there are some instances, you know, and I've, I've heard of cases where maybe it does go too far and, uh, you know, children are being, uh, introduced to these notions in ways that may fe- make them feel bad about themselves or we you know for example, I, as a free speech defender, I hope uh, what comes out of this is not a turning away from the First Amendment or the idea that the First Amendment is valueless because you know it too is sort of a product of a system that uh, had racism as a, a, a key part of it. So I can accept that but I really think these laws trying to banish critical race theory from curricula are, a serious threat to academic freedom and free speech. I, I just don't believe it is the role of legislatures to dictate what can and cannot be taught in a classroom. That's why we have teachers and educators and we ask them to use their judgment. I think, you know, uh, by and large, it's certainly not perfect, but they use sound judgment. I think also. You know, when you banish something or put it off limits, of course, that heightens its appeal and the intrigue that it holds. And it kind of creates this pitch social battle over it. And so I think this is very wrong headed. It's something we oppose as PEN America and something that we're going to be doing some more work on.
0: Great. Well, Suzanne Nassel, CEO of PEN America, she's author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. <laughs> And that's our episode for Friday, June 11th. Join us next week for The Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is The Pen Pod. See you next week.